This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Shootings have dominated the news lately. The call of shots fired came in just before noon. The gunmen attacked a planned parenthood on the west side of Colorado Springs. Police had the building We're following breaking news out of Southern California. Two suspects are dead in a shootout with police. Look at these images. It's all but clear attackers have taken control of Paris. I Today, we take a step back and consider what news consumers do and don't want from the media after a mass shooting. We posed this question through our Public Insight Network, and nearly 200 of you responded, including Carolyn Love of Broomfield. She's a business consultant, and she fears ratings win out over thoughtful reporting. And Chris Hamilton of Wheat Ridge works in IT. He thinks round-the-clock coverage goes overboard. To help inform this discussion, we're also joined by former Nightline correspondent Judy Muller. She covered the shootings at Columbine High School in 1999. She's now a journalism professor at the University of Southern California and joins us by phone from her part-time home in Norwood, Colorado. And it's nice to have all three of you on the program. Judy, I understand covering the shooting at Columbine High School almost made you leave journalism. Is that true? (laughs) It was really the most difficult story I think I've ever covered, and I've covered some difficult ones. Um, I think I feel for every reporter who is parachuted in for these mass shootings uh, because it's a really difficult job. Um, that said, I thought after what happened with the reportage in Columbine and some of the mistakes that were made and have been made since that things would get better. But quite frankly, I'm not seeing a lot of improvement. Um, we they keep making the same mistakes over and over again. We can go into that, but it's it's a little scary, actually. They keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Indeed, we'll go in depth on that, but why don't you give us what you think is the top mistake on the list? Going on the air too fast without verification. It's, it's just ridiculous. Uh, and I think your friend there uh, who... Uh, emailed in saying that ratings win. I don't know if it's ratings per se or the, or the pressure to beat the competition or whatever it is, but we're seeing it over and over again with these misstatements of fact that can hurt people and get it wrong over and over again. And there's no excuse for it. You have to verify what you're doing. There's all, all kinds of ways to verify, but the idea of waiting before you open your mouth live just doesn't seem to be getting, they don't seem to be getting the message. I mean, the latest example was MSNBC, Carrie Saunders, uh, when all the reporters were let into the apartment of the couple in San Bernardino, the landlord let them in, and it was this, this horror show of media stampede. And he went on live showing a Social Security card of the grandmother and toys of the baby. He was going to show a picture of their baby that he found there, but uh, the anchor said, let's not show any pictures of children, as though, you know, he didn't have the sense to know that. And that was just outrageous. We have a clip of that live coverage, yes, in which media were invited into the apartment in San Bernardino, and uh, CNN's coverage had the caption, Landlord invites media into killer's home across the bottom of the screen. 
Right, Anderson, this is what I was talking about before. I was the pers first person to walk into this room and saw how it was before everyone started touching it. And you can see that uh, police did go through and look at many things. I don't want to show you these IDs over here uh, just because I don't want to show you those uh, addresses that are on there. But I do believe that they belong to the mother of Farouk based on the ages that are there. But you can see that there are... Now, while CNN didn't show close-ups of IDs or photos, MSNBC did. The outlet eventually apologized telling The Hollywood Reporter, we regret that we briefly showed images of photographs and ID cards that should not have been aired without review. And Carolyn, uh, this inspired you in part to write into our Public Insight Network. Uh, you were pretty disgusted by that particular piece of coverage. I was, and it's interesting that uh, the reporter, that, that the the apology pertained to the um showing of the ID rather than stopping and thinking about what was appropriate to enter the room in the first place. What about that disturbed you so much? It seemed like it was just such a tremendous violation of um, of, of, of the individuals involved. Uh, I don't support terror or anything like that, but it just seemed like they stepped into the pace without thinking. And I often wonder... Uh, similar to what Judy was saying, while it, it, I associate it with ratings, but it's when do you pause and stop and figure out what's the right thing to do at this moment? It struck me, Judy, almost as a moment in which reality television and news kind of crossbred. Does that make sense? I think that's a really good analogy. I think that's we have just become so used to this kind of rampant put it on and <clears throat> retract it later. I call it the age of retraction. It's it's absurd. Um, I do disagree. Um, is it Carolyn? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I a little bit because once the those two people were dead, um, the landlord may have made a, an egregious error in violating privacy, but he invited reporters in. And the truth is, if I had been a reporter there and everybody else had been going in. Um, to see how they lived, and I would have gone in. New York Times went in. Uh, of course, they weren't going on live, but they were able to see a little bit about how people lived. Um, and I, it seems ghoulish, I think, when you see it live like that. It's ugly. But the truth is, the reporters are there to get the story. Who are these people? And I'm, I'm not sure there's a reporter who would not have gone in given the invitation to go in and hearing that the police had cleared it as a crime scene, a key factor. And so your point is it's the going live, potentially, yes. that's, the, that's the real issue there. Chris Hamilton, yeah. when you wrote us uh, through the Public Insight Network, you questioned whether this is uh, the responsibility of the media or of the audience that tunes in for these things and presumably um, set some sort of demand that the press cover things this way. Uh, talk about that. Sure. So there's this saying, if it bleeds, it leads. And to me, this, sure, that we all indict the media with this phrase, but this, uh, it, the, the, the consumers as well. We say, you know, there was the comment, it's not about ratings. Well, if people didn't watch this CNN headline news, they would, MSNBC, they would stop doing it if people stopped asking for it, demanding it, and, and sitting there and watching it. Uh, these, they're advertiser-driven just as much as anyone else. Um, and so I see this as... Um, so there is this pressure to be first, to have the most graphic detail, um, and you know, there's uh, the going live. 
there's a pace of cable television news in particular, as I see it, uh, that's, that's very different from, say, public radio, where just by the nature of the medium and how you do things, uh, you guys are, you do take the time. If you if you've said everything there is to say about a subject for now, you'll talk about something else. You'll talk about elections in France or whatnot, and you'll come back as things develop rather than CNN running a 45 second loop of SWAT officers adjusting their uniforms for hours on end. There's no content in that coverage. Judy Muller, this obviously differs uh, in terms of which medium you're talking about and which outlet. Um, Is it that mistakes are being made, you think, across journalism? Do you lay... Uh, the responsibility at particular outlets? Well, I think they all make mistakes. I mean, this is not restricted to 24-hour television news, although that's where it's worst. And I I think that because they are 24 hours and they have to fill that gaping mouth with news and they've got a big story, as, um, is it Chris that just said this? Indeed, Uh, yeah. Yes, Um, I agree with that, uh, that 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 pressure to keep going with that story ends up with this mindless looping of the same tape that happened hours before, and it's confusing to the viewer. What are they doing? Is this now? Um, Instead of stepping back, looking at other news, saying we'll come back to this when we have information, um, I think they're afraid to lose those viewers uh, who are just stuck to the television. Um, but it would really be wonderful to see that change to, and to step back and put things in context. For instance, uh, yes, 14 people died in San Bernardino at the same time across the country this week. 350 other people died in gun violence. Just, just to put things in context once in a while. Um, I don't think we do that enough either. This is something that we heard from uh, a number of listeners who responded to our question through the Public Insight Network about what you do and don't want from the media when it comes to coverage of mass shootings. Uh, And, you know, it was pointed out on this program not too long ago that the number one way people die from guns is suicide. And then after that, it's drugs and gang-related shootings. And and the list goes on. A bit of the context you're talking about there. But, uh, you know, Carolyn, you can turn the TV off. You can close the newspaper. You can close the browser if you're getting tired of it. So don't you as a consumer have a lot of power in that respect? Yes, you definitely have a lot of power in that respect. And interestingly enough, that is one of the things that I will do is I, I, I tune out. Um, however, for those people who really want to be informed, I think that we should consider, in addition to turning things off, what are some of the other alternatives that are available to us. Yes, we can elect not to listen to that radio station. We can elect not to look at that. But you also want to be an informed citizen. So I think that we should have that opportunity to do that. Let me say that NPR started putting a disclaimer at the bottom of its web stories for breaking news. And it says, this is a developing story. Some things that get reported by the media will later turn out to be wrong. We will focus on reports from police officials and other authorities, credible news outlets, and reporters who are at the scene. Judy, what do you think of a disclaimer like I think that's very smart, and I think more and more outlets are doing it. You know what, when we were talking about television not only being the ones that get it wrong, I I remind people that NPR uh, mistakenly reported that Gabby Giffords had died. Indeed. uh, When she had not and had to retract it. So it's not limited to uh, one 
one medium. Um, but I think the, re- the fact-checking is now being built in. New York Times has started a fact-check uh, service that embedded in the text, if there's something that's uh, still not uh, confirmed, they will underline it and embed it so that you can check where that information is at that point. Uh, that's easier to do with print. But I think that when you constantly caution people, it is a good idea. You know, we cannot say for sure that this is the final answer. However, there's also an argument, well, if you can't say for sure, why are you saying it? Which is, you know, um, I actually heard Wolf Blitzer say during the Navy Yard shootings at one point, we should warn people that what we just reported could be entire, completely false. I'm not, that's not an exact quote, but it was pretty close. And I'm just, John Stewart took that on that <laughs> night and said, if it's completely false, don't say it. Or it has you the know. potential to be, yeah. So I think, I think that it's to pause and wait and confirm has got to be the lesson here. We spoke uh, with Connie Sanders. She also contacted us through the Public Insight Network. Her father, Dave Sanders, was a coach and teacher at Columbine High School. He is credited with saving many lives on April 20th, 1999, when two students opened fire. Uh, He died that day. Connie Sanders says the media made the perpetrators notorious. This has been really horrific for my family for the last 16 years. Randomly, you're standing in the grocery store And you look down, and Time magazine has a picture of the two people that murdered your loved one. And you imagine how many people are looking at them, yet there's very little mention of the victims. If children are latching onto that and saying, wow, this person got a lot of attention, and society really listened to that person and validated that person by showing everything that they did. And I wonder if maybe I could do something worse. Connie Sanders says perpetrators... Since Columbine, uh, the shooting there have referenced her father's killers as inspiration. Chris, do you think media coverage focuses too much on the suspects, maybe glorifying them? Gosh, I mean, there there are still websites, uh, TV programs, books dedicated to Charles Manson. Um, the this the notoriety of villains. I mean, there's a lot of. Um, People find that appealing. Yeah, the Columbine shooters are still these cult figures in some circles, and it's it's very tempting to say, well, we should deny them any glory, any lasting glory, um, the ability to inspire copycats. Um, but then I, I, you know, that makes me. There's there's legitimate news there. I mean, if you if you're not talking about the who, how do you how do you discover the why? Which is the job of the media. Right. There's a tension I'm hearing here that you both crave context. You want to know why something happened. You want to know how something happened. Uh, naturally, Judy Miller, doesn't that mean you have to look at the who? I agree with Chris. That's absolutely right. The reporter's job is to get the who, to get at the why, um, and, and find out what motivates people, how they get their weapons, how easy was it, should they have been allowed to get weapons, that sort of thing. It, it's, uh, however, we repeat this narrative, and every single time it almost becomes like Groundhog Day uh, with the same meta-narrative. Who were they? Why did they do it? How did they get the guns? What should be done? It's, it's really 
a similar cycle. I don't know how you get out of that, though, because reporters have their jobs. I think it's interesting that Connie Saunders uh, is quoted there. Um, on the day after the Columbine shooting, my first job, I was reporting for World News Tonight with Peter Jennings, and my assignment was to find out who the victims were and tell us something about them. And the names had not been released. The bodies hadn't even been released from the morgue. Um, and we only knew a few things, but I did know that there had been a teacher, and I found out who that teacher was. And I went to the home, the Saunders' home, and they had signs all over the front porch saying, media, stay away, do not bother us. And I sat there thinking, oh, no, what will I do? Um, and at that moment, a nephew walked out, and I just said, would you mind talking to me? I won't bother the rest of the family, and he did. But it, it's there, there it is. There's the crucible right there. I'm the reporter. I need to get on the air that night. Everybody else is getting the story. Who are people? We want to know about them because we relate to them, and the families often want to talk about them. But it's very tough. Because and don't you, you don't you Judy at that moment in your mind also have, gosh, what if NBC gets that voice and I don't? That is to to oh, speak to the company. Oh yeah, the competition. I mean, I, I, you know, I have a job and my editors in New York, you know, they they want me to to get that piece on the air, um, and I'm I'm aware of that. On the other hand, I will tell you, and I've written this in the book. I wrote about this. That was a moment where I thought maybe I shouldn't be in this business. I mean, it really was such a moment where I thought, I, I could do something else. I could sell shoes. I mean, you know, it really was an awful place, and I feel for all the reporters who have to cover these stories. It's so hard. Well, in uh, the comment there from Connie Sanders was this idea of the potential for coverage to lead to copycats. Let's tackle that after a quick break. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're following up on what many of you told us when we asked what you want and don't want from the media when it comes to coverage of mass shootings. Let's rejoin the conversation in just a bit on Colorado Public Radio News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When we asked how you want the media to cover mass shootings, more than 200 of you responded through our public inside network, including Carolyn Love of Broomfield, who's a business consultant, and Chris Hamilton of Wheat Ridge, who works in IT. They join us to share their perspectives. And we're also joined by former Nightline correspondent Judy Muller, who now teaches journalism at the University of Southern California Annenberg School. Before the break, we uh, hinted at the idea that coverage might inspire copycats. Let me say that there is a petition circulating online now with nearly 15,000 supporters asking the media to tone down its coverage of mass shootings. It cites an FBI investigation called The School Shooter a threat assessment perspective. And this report says a lot of research still needs to be done, but that, quote, anecdotal evidence strongly indicates threats increase schools, uh, th that is to say, threats increase in schools nationwide after a shooting has occurred anywhere in the United States. Uh, Carolyn, what do you think about this copycat question? I think it's a very complex question. Um, for me, I, I would have to look at some research and some data because there's a piece of me that says, there might be some people who have the propensity to do this. Mm -hmm. 
Does the media inform that behavior? Yes, I do in some sense believe that the media does inform that and the the seeing the, the, the news repetitively. However, I'm not certain at this point if I can make that direct link that says someone sees this, they go out, they purchase a gun, and they're going to want to go into a school and commit a heinous crime. What do you think, Chris? Uh, I, to me, copycat... Uh, it's it's a clear phenomenon that's real. Um, I mean, one woman in Halifax, Nova Scotia, tied winter coats to a lamppost in an act of generosity, and this resonated with people around the world, and we're seeing this happen. What is that if not a copycat incident? We don't call it that because we like it. It's generous. I think people are... People see things, they're exposed to ideas, and depending on what place that person is in, if they're in a place of generosity, if they're feeling marginalized and alone, this event or that action will resonate with them and seem like a good idea that, you know what, I'm going to take this up and do it too. And um, it's, you, you think that there's uh, evidence on, on both the positive and negative of, of a copycat phenomenon. Um, Carolyn, you had a question for Judy Muller. Yes, I do. Because, Judy, as I listen to you, I'm curious to know, especially as you shared the story about sitting outside the home of the the family involved in the Columbine shooting. I'm curious to know what what are the guiding principles or what are the ethics around engaging in this sort of story or in the media overall? Well, we have ethical guidelines. The Society for Professional Journalists has a code of ethics. Um, We teach that. I teach that. Um, I go over these things with my students. I give them case studies. What would you do in this case? And I think that we always have to put, um, uh, we have to always be mindful of victims' sensibilities and not trample on those. That has to be balanced with with the public's right to know. Now, did the public have a right to know, for instance, what was in that room or that apartment that the media stormed into? I'm not so sure. Um, I, you know, you really have to have to have an ethical core, and I think newsrooms have to teach that. But it's almost quaint to ask, in, you know, about copycats and the effect of the media in this day and age, because social media has so blown up this whole scene. Mm. There's no more top-down uh, gatekeepers. Everybody's in this. Everybody's a consumer and a producer of information. And one of the things I do at USC is teach a news literacy class. And this is to non-journalism majors, to the people formerly known as the audience. What are your ethical obligations in passing things on on social media that you can't confirm, uh, that you look up PolitiFact, uh, factcheck.org, snopes.com. There's all kinds of fact-checking organizations where you can go before you pass on bad information. So I think we're all in this together now. I don't think it's just the media's problem. Right. We're not all television news anchors, but many of us tweet and many of us Facebook and pass along information to communities that way. You're saying that that, that idea of checking your source, of verifying your facts, works for individuals who are not journalists in and of themselves because of social media. You know, this leads to the question of whether... Uh, outlets should steer clear of using the names of suspected shooters. Mm. There's a lot of talk about this. Um, I wonder how you feel about that, Chris, the idea of steering clear of using a particular name or even someone's image. Well, certainly I'm trying to avoid using names. Uh, 
in this discussion today, uh, it's the tone is really important, right? I mean, it's as we said before, the who is critical if you're going to explore the why. Uh, this one can't be a secret if you're to to uh, drive down on the other, and but you know we can we can choose not to plaster this footage of the say the the planes hitting the twin towers over and over. Um, that these these triggering events that take people back to you know I see you're standing in line at the supermarket the example we heard earlier and you see a photo of the person who killed your father 16 years ago and that's we have to appreciate that these are real people I find myself in the position of writing a sentence for broadcast that uses the name of a particular shooter or alleged shooter. And Judy Miller, it's very easy to not use the name, to just say the alleged shooter. Is that an important uh, decision to make for a journalist, do you think? I I really wrestle with this question. I I know, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think it was the Aurora shooting, uh, Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooting, where um, um, Anderson Cooper made a statement, I'm not going to mention his name in this broadcast, because I don't want to glorify him. Well, that was an editorial decision. Um, but I think it's, it's sort of a moot at that point. The name's out there. As, as I said, that once the name is out there spreading on social media, I don't, what I think would glorify it is to constantly show pictures of him. And, you know, I think to overdo the coverage of the shooter, we have to know why, we have to know who, but you don't have to pound it to death 24 hours and 24-hour news cycles. Carolyn, you've been nodding your head there. Yes, I agree. And I, I, I have a question, actually, for, for Judy, because it seems like as I hear you talk, you really emphasize mindfulness, to be thoughtful about what you're doing yes. and to take some time. So how does that translate, in your opinion, to when it is appropriate to use names or not appropriate to use names? Well, I think when you have a major story, a mass shooting, you have the the person's name, perhaps they're dead, perhaps they're not, um, you have an obligation as a reporter to tell that name, to report that. That's the who of the who, what, where, why, when. Um, and you also want to look at the why did that person, what was the motivation, and how did they do it. But beyond that, I think it's a matter of, of um, amount. I, re- I really think that you have to identify the person, but you don't have to pound away at it to the point where it does become a almost a, uh, not a glorification, but certainly creating its own world. Um, copycat killers, unfortunately, uh, I don't think there's anything that's going to stop that. Um, we saw, we've seen it over and over again. Um, right, and if you use and, the name five times less, is it going to mean that there's not a copycat? If you I, use no, it five hundred so. times, that, yeah. No, I don't think so, Chris, and I and I don't know. I don't know that it's the media's responsibility on that. Uh, I think there's a lot of other ways in society that we can deal with these issues, that, but apart outside of the reporting. Um, but that's, I don't think that's going to stop it. Uh, as you know, the L.A. schools were closed um, for a whole day because of a threat that came soon after the San Bernardino shootings. And, uh, you know, somebody pulled a hoax, but... You know, it was clearly because of that shooting. They knew it would have a good chance of happening. Yeah, the timing so, in that case is is critical. Pardon me? The timing in that is critical. Chris, yes, just, I, I think it was the timing. Just briefly, sure. So, uh, 
I hear what you're saying about the social media and Twitter changing who are the people reporting. You know, now everybody's a journalist. Um, but there are still the professionals, the, the Stephanopoulos, uh, Anderson Cooper, Ryan here in the room. Uh, we, you guys, I do think there's a responsibility as the professionals. You can, you can choose to join this race to the bottom, um, and, you know, scroll tweets across the bottom of your screen all day long. Um, or you can choose to say, we're going to try to shape the tone of this conversation. Um, and we, we, I heard what you said earlier about the struggle of, getting the story while still being respectful to the victims. And that is what the professionals can bring here. A lot of listeners echoed this sentiment who wrote into our Public Insight Network saying that they want more information about prevention, about warning signs. Um, And so that is uh, absolutely something we heard. And there's much more of what we heard at our website, cprnews.org. I want to thank the three of you for sharing your thoughts and your time with us. We heard from Judy Muller, journalism professor at USC's Annenberg School in Southern California. She joined us by phone from her part-time home in Norwood, Colorado. And through that Public Insight Network of ours, we found media consumers Carolyn Love of Broomfield and Chris Hamilton of Wheat Ridge. As I said, there are more comments from listeners on this question of how the media handles mass shootings at CPRnews.org, which is also where you can join the Public Insight Network and lend a hand in our reporting. We'll be right back with Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A coalition of American Indian tribes, including Colorado's Ute Mountain Ute, is working to protect their ancestral lands in southern Utah, and they've proposed a nearly two-million-acre national monument called Bears Ears. CU Law Professor Charles Wilkinson says intertribal coalitions usually address general issues like education or health care, so this is unusual. There's the individuality of tribes. They're all very proud of having their own history and their own really set of problems and opportunities. So people in the know, you know, are pretty amazed that this happened. Wilkinson is special advisor to this project. Even though it's unusual, he says it's a logical move. That really would increase the force of the proposal. If tribes came in separately or they came in as individuals, would be very different. But having five major tribes together really adds a lot of heft to this back in D.C. And we should say there is some powerful political opposition to this proposal in Utah. Regina Lopez-Weitzkunk, who lives in Toyak in southwestern Colorado, represents the Ute Mountain Utes in this coalition. And Regina, welcome to the program. Hi. For those who've never been to this area of southern Utah, which you'd like to make a national monument, Bears Ears, describe the area for us. Okay, I know this is this is highly unusual, but I'm going to ask a request of our listeners. I really want you to to feel what I'm about to describe. And with that, I know we're on the radio, but I'd like for you to just take a moment and close your eyes and imagine a time when there was not so much technology, so much land development, but a time when things existed in its most pristine form. You've got the canyons you have the the cliff dwellings of the presence of our ancient ones that once existed. You have waterways that have have carved their ways through the, the land there. So there's waterways that only exist during the runoff seasons, and other times they're dry. 
you see a lot of pine trees, a lot of cedar and juniper trees. Out in this land, up on the buttes there, which we refer to as Bears Ears, you see so much there. You feel a presence uh, of spirituality that may have existed of long ago, but at the same time exists in our present time. So there's so much that, that is up there and so many things that when we have the chance to visit and, and conduct our pilgrimages to this area, that we as Native Americans connect with the earth. This is obviously a place you feel a real connection to and, and have been many times? Yes, yes. It's a beautiful place. And, and being a young girl growing up in the area, it's it's kind of ironic Um Especially during your teenage years, you're like you you're you're used to your surroundings and you want to get away. But it's through the absence mm. of return back to home when you really get to sense that the beauty and and how much you didn't get to see this stuff, but now you you realize this is something that really means a lot to us. And why do you think that it needs the protection um, that you know becoming a national monument would afford it? The protection is a huge, huge piece of the conversation here. Um, there's there's so much up there. Like I mentioned, you know, there's the, so many things that grow up there. One of the things that uh, we see as a threat is is the the locations of the cliff dwellings, the petroglyphs. There's a lot of looting. There's a lot of grave digging that occurs up there. Um, there's so much in terms of what used to be there from from the early 1400s and even forth at, into the more contemporary times where our people go and still collect herbs, still harvest certain um, aspects of the land to utilize within ceremonial um, engagements as well as just going there just to, to take some time to get away from the hustle and bustle of our busy lives. But turning it into a national monument, though it would afford some protection to this area that is so important to you in Utah, might it also draw a lot of crowds? Uh, could it put it in more jeopardy in some ways? Yes, and and I agree. And this is one of the unique portions of our proposal is one of the things that we would like to strongly emphasize is the co-management piece. Because Being, this this would be unusual in the system. The, the tribes, the nations would have a role in its management. And that's not really true for other national monuments, is it? Absolutely. A lot of times tribes get consulted and and are put in the advisory capacity. What we propose is to, to have more of an equal distribution of management and policy as they come to the table. And how do you think that would change the management or uh, afford it the protections you'd like to see? Well, in this area, I know right now, currently, the Navajo Nation and the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe are directly adjacent or if not within the area. The other tribes have had historical um, ties to the land. So one of the things that um, we propose is that the Right now, we are a coalition of five tribes, which I'm going to name as Navajo, Ute Mountain, Uinta Oray, Tribe of Utah, the Hopi, and the Zuni Pueblo. And one of the things that we feel that's very important is that as things move along and transition, that this coalition will move from the planning efforts and the campaign to to designate the area as a as a national monument would transition to a commission 
Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that the people that are participating on the coalition now would automatically move into the commission because, of course, we'd want to have the experts and the specialists sitting in those capacities to address the management and the policy areas. Um, so that it serves not just the tourist, right. but that it also serves the nations that feel really represented there. Right. And, and I think it's extremely important that everybody have that collaborative effort to being at the table to design some of these management plans and to help implement them and monitor. I think that's extremely important because a lot of times that management and monitoring piece gets left out when tribes are looked upon in the advisory capacity. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about a proposed national monument that would be across the border in Utah called Bears Ears. Uh, And there are many in Colorado who are interested in this, including members of uh, the Ute Mountain Ute tribe who uh, see this in many ways as an ancestral homeland. Uh, There is controversy, as we mentioned, in Utah about the proposed national monument, uh, concerns about access for recreation, energy and mineral development and impact on something called school trust lands if the monument's created? Are there plans to address uh, those users of this land? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And by bringing people to the table, um, especially with the tribes, which generally, like I've mentioned before, always get consulted in that advisory capacity, by coming to the table and talking about possible solutions, I think, is the biggest key. Um, we're right now really working hard to to communicate with the Utah delegation to make sure that some of this stuff, if at all, gets included in their PLI effort, which is their public lands initiative. Um, because so we're th- looking... there's this other proposal that would actually right. protect a larger area but would do so differently. right. Right. Um, and one of the biggest challenges is being able to to conduct the conversation. It almost is two different conversations. One is very focused on the local efforts, which is encompassing the county commissioners, a lot of the local communities. But whereas the, the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition, we've elevated the conversation to more of a, a a government-to-government conversation, which is one of the reasons why we have taken our sovereignty and began to really try to wield the conversation on a higher level. And one that reaches Washington. Exactly. Yes, your, your sovereignty is as Indian nations. How soon do you think you might hear whether the Obama administration will approve the monument? We're hoping very soon. We're hoping um, that we'll hear something after after we've exhausted the the efforts with the Utah delegation, then that's when we'll begin the conversation if and when things either align or don't align. Uh, the coalition will then make that determination whether we do knock on that door of the president and his administration. But you see this first as a, as a local effort. Right. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that the tribes don't all want the same thing for this land? No. I don't. I don't see it that way. I, I. I feel very strongly that we we're very very focused on what we we've, we've developed, which is our philosophy of a bullseye, and in the center of that bullseye is the sense of healing. Then there's the sense on the outer layer of the people's movement, which encompasses everybody, uh, whether that's the the non-Indian communities, but as well as the the Native American, and then the outer 
the outer ring is a co-management piece, which everybody, we all need to have our input from recreation to, to the tribal development and management pieces of that. Thanks for being with us. That's Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk, who represents the Ute Mountain Utes on the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. At 92 years old, Dorothy Tanner is still making art, and it's not a medium that allows her to sit idly. Tanner works with light and plexiglass. Her work is best seen in the dark, and she has been at this mode of sculpture for more than 60 years. With her late husband, Mel Tanner, she added sound and music, creating a psychedelic experience they called lumonics. The concept found a home in trippy dance parties at a theater that the couple opened in Miami. Well, Dorothy Tanner now lives in Westminster, and an exhibition of her work is on through the end of the month at her studio in Denver. Tanner says she has never seriously considered retiring. I mostly like playing with stuff, so why should I stop? But I suppose in that way it's never felt purely like work. Um, it's it's felt like play as well. well. No, that's not. That's really not true. Uh, once you become interested in something, seriously interested, it's no longer just play. It involves you totally, and I think that's as much as what compels you to continue as just playing around. You're satisfying a couple of parts of yourself that need to be activated. What are those parts? So there's the play the part, play, but what are the... The yeah. play part is the virtual part. There's the intellectual part that I would rather not talk about. Well, let's talk about the spiritual then. I can imagine working with light and sound having exactly. something yeah. of a heavenly yeah. quality or... Exactly. Uh, Certainly working with sound is spiritual, and light is uh, wonderful. It brings in a totally other dimension to a a here-and-now object. Do you get tired? Do I get tired? Yeah, when you're working on a piece. Sometimes, yes. And what do you tell yourself when you are tired about continuing? Go lie down for a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Take a break. Take a walk. Smoke a joint. You've been involved with art since you were about 17 or 18? Yeah. uh, More seriously, uh, I was 27, 28. And you were in New York around that time? Uh, Yeah. Abstract expressionism had flourished. Well, and you drew, uh, I imagine, some inspiration from that because your pieces well, yeah, uh, are the, deconstructed. The, the, the freedom that uh, it allowed it uh, was mind boggling, you know, from representational uh, work to David Smith and uh, this guy, Ferber, there were people working with metal. I worked with metal early on. I went through the traditional media like clay and uh, wood and stone. And, you know, I had to go through all of it. I had to experience it before I finally settled on 
of all things, plexiglass. Plexiglass, right. What was it about plexiglass that caught your color? Color, color. I wanted color in the sculpture. And although wood is lovely with its grain and so on, it didn't have color in the sense that I wanted it, and I didn't want to paint. What's so great about light is you bring a particular light to a, an object that is a color, and you change the color, and you don't know what the outcome will be. Speaking of light, uh, your work later grew to be called and involve something called lumonics. Yeah. But this was, this was not just a name for an art form. It was like a whole idea that, that yes. you brought when you moved to Florida, the Miami area. What was Lumonics? No, it evolved. It was born in Miami, actually. Mm. It means light and sound experience. We uh, were influenced by the mentality of the 60s, which opened up music, and as it opened up the visual arts, and it combined music and light and color And we utilized the sculptures, the lighted sculptures, to reflect the music. Mel was a painter at the time, and so we did projections on a 30-foot wall, which were paintings, and then we overlaid the paintings with lasers. And you opened up um, eventually a series of theaters in which this would occur. Yeah. Yeah, we moved to California, and from there, one of our people had a place in Maine. We moved to a bank building in Maine and converted it to a Lamonic space. And describe the one in, that you opened. Was it in Miami? The idea it was to change people's consciousness when they walked in the door. They walked in the door, there was a spacey fountain. They turned the corner, and there was this large room. And the whole room had light sculptures in it. Is it true that they made it into, like, dance parties in Miami and clubs? Uh, Later on, uh, with the help of Mark. This is Mark Billard. Yes. He and I collaborated on music and video. Why don't we hear some of that, that music? started to get too popular. <laughs> and it was, by the way, during a period when ecstasy was happening with the kids. The authorities, they made it illegal and so on. Were you raided? Finally, yes. We didn't handle any of it. We weren't there to make money on drugs. What eventually led you to Denver? I think it was enough, really, of uh, that kind of density, the, the too many palm trees, too much heat. Uh, there were probably other reasons, maybe even more practical reasons. 
Uh, this place has a uh, history of Naropa, uh, a different kind of thinking, and legalization was a uh, an important uh, element in assessing what the mentality is. Legalization of, of marijuana. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. That is light and sound sculptor Dorothy Tanner. She hosts an exhibition of her work at her studio in North Denver through December 30th. We spoke to Tanner earlier this year. Stephanie Wolf and Shauna Lewis produced today's show. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio News.